Why do we exist? Were we created with a purpose? Or are we just here by chance? What are we to believe about life, faith, and worldview? Welcome to The Universe Next Door, focusing on answers to the questions we all consider. The Universe Next Door is supported by the C.S. Lewis Society, Trinity College of Florida, and supported by gifts from listeners just like you. Discover more resources and continue the conversation at apologetics.org. And now, your host, the research professor of Bible and theology at Trinity College of Florida, author and speaker, Dr. Tom Woodward. Welcome to the Universe Next Door, where we discuss all things apologetics, that is the defense of the Christian faith, and we encourage you to check out our website, apologetics.org. Dr. Woodward, how are things in your universe today? Well, my universe is looking pretty nice uh, here in Florida, but of course, as I'm thinking about uh, the arrival of uh, deep spring, and um, I think summer is knocking on our door, it's a beautiful time of the year when God displays his beauty, his greatness, his glory, his high-tech creative prowess seen in all the amazing creatures that are coming out and saying, okay, it's been a long winter, here I am. It's just kind of fun to see. I mean, we have a, a cocker spaniel who's about though, four months old, a little over than that. And he is such a sweet puppy. He's kind of like tan color, color of coffee ice cream. And he has those big brown eyes. And he has a cute little you know, pair of uh, long, floppy, long, fluffy ears. And he says, like, when he looks at me in the morning, he's like, I love being alive. What can I romp in and chew on today? <laughs> so even cocker spaniels, in their own way, yip and yap, but they, they, they declare the glory of God just by their cute actions, the way God has made the species, you know, two, three, or ten million, however you want to count them, if you include the extinct ones, they're all just shouting the glory of God. And it's fun to be able to see that as we get ready for final exams here on the Trinity College campus. Uh, can I talk about final exams from God's perspective? Oh, I would love to hear that. Yeah, well, I'm I'm known for being kind of a medium, I guess, medium hard professor here. As in addition to my duties leading the C.S. Lewis Society, it's been my privilege for 33 years to to teach at one of the premier Bible colleges in the United States. Trinity College of Florida has actually provided office space for the C.S. Lewis Society. They provided you know free telephone, internet, and they provided this wonderful support base. It's just a really kind of warm, fuzzy, uh, awesome relationship we've had uh, with the very college where you're um, working toward uh, your degree, and I think you've enjoyed Trinity College as well, haven't you, Nick? Yes, and I am continuing to enjoy it. I love it. That's great. Well, we have a uh, a really cool team of professors. Uh, we have one of the in the United States, leading theologians who works on uh, ironing out the, the questions we have about weird passages, Dr. Eric Bargerhuff. He's been interviewed on our program, and he leads that now as the new academic dean, leads our um, wonderful progress in that area of just bringing on more and more amazing professors. We have uh, Dr. Stu Parsons, who's an expert in the apologetics of the first and second and third centuries. So we're so thankful for him. Uh, he actually sometimes uh, acts funny and kind of a, doing a demo. He'll actually climb up on the middle in front of the class up front. He'll climb up on a big desk, uh, which is like a 10-foot-long table, and he'll do a demo of, of what it is like to understand the theology of the early centuries and then the theology of the Bible. And students look at him sometimes, uh, he's about my age, you know, maybe a little bit younger, but to, to see him doing uh, such funny, crazy stunts to act out theology points, I think, is just absolutely wonderful. 
And so, but you, so you never know what you're going to find at Trinity College of Florida. Where today, in my science class of Darwin and Design, we were able to uh, look at a whole slew of uh, DNA particulars, uh, facts that point to high-tech intelligence uh, as responsible for crafting the wonders of our body. But I'd like to talk about final exam that we see from uh, God's perspective. Uh, we're getting ready, like I said, to have final exams here at Trinity over about the next week and a half. And students will be getting uh, some good news, some great news. I think a couple of my Darwin Design students will ace the final. Some of them may not get such good news, and, and some of them actually may fail, uh, unfortunately, if they don't study and if they haven't come to classes as, as regularly and persistently studied as they should. But there is a, a, a very important apologetics turning point in the Bible where God talks about everybody in the world having, in one way, shape, or another, having a final exam that's coming up. And, of course, for Christians, those who put their faith in Christ, who've trusted uh, based on the, the, the data, the, the truth of, of Scripture, and the truth that is speaking to our hearts by the Holy Spirit, that Christ is the one and only uh, God who became man, who took our place on the cross, who paid for our sins in full, past, present, and future, and who rose from the dead, and who was seen by so many eyewitnesses, and whose eyewitnesses are listed in one of the most amazing early passages First uh, Corinthians 15, because it was a, a, a quotation that Paul brought from earlier Christian sources, you know that that can be traced to the 30s A.D., which means that the historical argument for Christ being raised from the dead is overwhelmingly powerful, based on 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 7 alone. And that was developed, of course, uh, very, very effectively by Gary Habermas, the professor at Liberty, who's developed the minimal facts argument. So, uh, as I'm thinking here on, you know, the reality of Christ and the amazing truth of the gospel, there is this kind of reminder in the Bible that that even Paul gave to philosophers, to elite thinkers of his day, when he went to Athens. He didn't just kind of hobnob with the with the public; he actually made a presentation a powerful presentation, at least in the summary that we have in Acts 17. So I'd like to kind of read a couple verses and, and discuss Acts 17 for just a bit, because it involves Darwinists of Paul's day. Yes, there were proto or forerunner Darwinists even in the day of Paul, because the ideas of Epicurus, uh, a philosopher of the 4th century, about 330 B.C., 4th century B.C., so this is after the Old Testament was completed when Malachi was, was uh, penned and added to the uh, body of Scripture. So a little bit after that, uh, we, we see this uh, philosophy uh, coming together from taking threads of earlier thinkers, Anaximander, Anaxagoras, um, a little bit from Democritus, and especially Lucretius coming later before Christ uh, put the icing on the cake when he wrote his 100-page poem called De Rerum Natura, which is really kind of, it sounds like it could be written by Richard Dawkins in the 20th century, speaking of how matter comes together by chance, um, uh, little bits of, of uh, atomic pieces uh, collide in the void and form larger and larger congregations of matter, which then become animals, plants, and human beings. Hmm, sounds a bit Darwinian. Well, it is proto, that is, it is a forerunner to Darwinian thought. And that's exactly what Paul encountered when he went to Athens. 
And so I want to talk about what Paul says here, and then I want to talk about the clues that we have from God to prep us for the final exam. In other words, to face a final exam for rewards and not the final exam of judgment for sin. Because after all, the final exam that Christians have, it's a different kind of final, and that's mentioned by Paul in 2 Corinthians 5. And that final exam is to examine our life to see what has enduring, you know, the uh, gold, silver, precious stone enduring quality from our life. If it was done in the power of the Holy Spirit, if it was done humbly and not for show to impress people, if it was done by Christ flowing through us as we are vines, uh, but rather branches abiding in his powerful vine. And so that uh, 2 Corinthians 5, the uh, you might say it's like the award ceremony examination that the Army, the Navy, the Air Force might examine the records of people before they give them ribbons. That's a different kind of exam, but the exam that Paul is confronting the philosophers at Athens is the more um, kind of grim it's uh, blunt, it's truth, it's uh, in your face a little bit, but it's, it's presented in love. It's presented carefully with total integrity. And so that's what I want to do, is I want to begin by talking about Paul's warning to the philosophers. You know, there were Stoics, and they had a vague God concept, very kind of diffuse idea of somehow intelligence is embedded in the matter around us. That sounds a bit like Einstein's worldview, doesn't it, Nick? I mean, Einstein yeah, saw, saw the, the equations. He saw sort of, sort of, you know, put in quotes the word sort of, sort of a God icon or, or picture or image mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the laws of nature. But he didn't really see a personal God who would actually know us in a relationship, who would answer prayers and so on. Yeah, he has that famous quote about God not rolling uh, dice. Exactly. Which is really more of a deist sort of thing, but... Yeah, and, and almost pantheist in his case. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's sort of like a bridge between deism, but kind of, you know, flatten it down to almost pantheism. But so so that's a picture of what the Stoic philosophers were like. So they were, they were a little bit more engaged, I think, uh, although God, by his mighty spirit, can break through anybody's um, defenses and, and mental tricks that they put up. So it says that Paul, of course, was uh, reviewing uh, or kind of um, observing and taking stock of all these idols and all these um, uh, worship centers he saw in Athens. Of course, the, the formerly great headquarters of Plato and Aristotle and even Socrates before that. And, and so here's a history, a, a, a city that's steeped in philosophical history, asking the biggest questions that you can ask. And that's one reason I love philosophy because it brings up those huge, important, basic questions, and, I, and one of them is God. I mean, so the philosophers are not skittish about discussing God. They'll put that on the assignment for students, you know. Let's talk about it. What can we figure out about this God option or this God possibility? That's why, again, I totally love the realm of philosophy as an entry point for Christian discussion. So Paul says this, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, so he was reaching out to those who already had a bit of God's revelation. But he was confronting a group, it says in verse 18, of Epicurean. Okay, there's the proto-Darwinist, kind of like uh, uh, tentative, uh, un unspecified. In other words, they didn't have a mechanism all worked out, but they had the basic idea that we had come together by chance and that there was no life after death. There was no judgment. No, um, There was no God who was going to authoritatively confront us with our deeds. 
So a group of Epicurean, and then he adds, and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. So they didn't like his ideas that he was sharing in the marketplace. They were pushing back. Some of them asked, uh, what is this babbler trying to say? And the word babbler there is very interesting. It has the idea of a bird that flies down and is kind of poking along the beach, picking at this and picking at that and pulling up a seed. Sometimes it's been translated a seed picker. They look at Paul as a guy who is taking different uh, weird ideas and just sticking them together and making a strange fruit salad and putting it in front of them. So what is this babbler, this seed picker, trying to say? Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. In other words, these are gods we haven't heard about. Well, the god of the universe, of course, uh, Yahweh, the one god who exists in a communion, a loving relationship and dance of three persons. He says, um, you know, that they, they react and they said that this, it seems like he was preaching the good news, but he was favoring two gods, Jesus, that's one God, okay, that, that fits the facts, and then the resurrection, or anastasis. And so they actually, Paul was talking so much about the facts of Christ, the facts, the historical evidence for Christ, and emphasizing his resurrection. Anastasis, the Greek word, they thought that Anastasis was the name of another God that was hanging out with Jesus. You talk about a strange and almost <laughs> humorous confusion. And Paul's saying, wait a minute, no, time out. You can see him holding up his hands to form the famous T of a timeout. He said, no, 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 no. I'm sorry, you misunderstood. I'll try again. And this is where he basically says, let me tell you about the altar that you have to an unknown God, and I'm going to talk about that unknown God, the altar that you just kind of erected to protect yourself. If there's a God that you haven't heard about and he's going to be mad because you don't have an altar to, to him, you covered your bases by putting this altar to the unknown God. I'm going to use that as an as a, a, a entry point to my discussion because the God who made the universe, who is not really served by you know making up of temples and, and, and piddling little sacrifices. No, the God I'm telling you about is the God who is above the universe, who made the universe, and yet who completely inhabits every cubic inch of the universe. So I'll just read a couple of the key quotes. Some of them I've actually required my students to memorize this semester. I'll, I'll read, for example, uh, verse 25, 26, and 27. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Wow. So all men have life and breath, and everything they have is a gift from God. So that tells us we can really rejoice in and thank God for everything that we have because they're sourced in him. Verse 26 says, from one man, and this is a really strong verse for combating racism of, every, of any kind, from one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the times set for them and the exact places where they should live. That's verse 26 from Acts 17. Now, notice here, God did not just make the entire human race from one man. Of course, he's, uh, Eve is involved. If he had time, he would have gone into the details that, that are seen in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. But from one man, he made the entire nation, but he also invented or, or crafted the, the process of history that has produced all the exact places, the, geo, you know, the geopolitical boundaries, and, and, and even interactions between nations. 
And where they should live would be to set up for the purpose, it says in verse 27, a purpose that is starkly astounding. It's amazing. God did this, verse 27, so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. I mean, that's a verse that is like, it's a eureka shout from Mount Everest. God did this. He created mankind in geopolitical differentiations of nations set up in different parts of the world. He did all of that in a master plan that would engage people in seeking and finding him, seeking him and reaching out for him and finding him, though he's not far from one of any, any one of us. And he says, and let me quote one of your own philosophers, one of your own poet philosophers, and that's where he says, For in him we live and move and have our being. For in him we live and move and have our being. Verse 28. And then he says, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We are, that is, bearers of the image of God. And even though it's, it's, it's corrupted, it's dented, it's scratched, it's dirty, but that image, that mirror that reflects God's own glory is still seen. Uh, dimly maybe and depending from person to person each of us has our own dirty mirror by which we reflect God but the the rationality the sensitivity toward value and goodness we know deep in our heart we should seek goodness but we do not consistently so that fallenness is is part of the total reality of God that is in, embedded in our nature and therefore he says therefore since we think uh, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that a divine being is like gold or silver or stone. In other words, these little images you've made are an, are an abortive attempt. They are a failed attempt to capture the essence of God. In verse 30, Paul says, again, chapter 17 of Acts, in verse 30 he says, In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now, I love the turning point here, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And even C.S. Lewis in his book Mere Christianity has a glorious, powerful, very clear and beautiful description of what repentance is all about. What is repentance? It's doing an about face. It's doing a 180. You're going in one direction and you realize you're headed toward destruction. You're headed towards ultimate doom, a failure, disintegration, annihilation, death. In judgment, and so you do a U-turn. You get back on the road, going the opposite direction, and you you don't just saunter. You don't just like lazily waddle over to God. You run to Him and embrace the gift of life, of eternal life, found in one and only one person. That is Christ, who bore the wrath of God, who bore the righteous righteous uh, indignation that we deserve and absorbed it and, and paid for it and exhausted it, uh, who quenched it. Uh, that's a lo lovely word from the English language. He quenched God's wrath and therefore invites us to receive him. And if we do not, we are heading that down that same original road toward destruction. If we do the 180 and repent, we come back to him. And then it says, for he has set a day, I love this, verse 31, Acts 17, 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. Notice that. He's bringing it back to Jesus. He has given proof of this, he says in verse 31, Acts 17, 31. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. 
And now he has made clear what this anastasis is all about. It is the stamp of authoritative proof. It's evidence. It's verifiable. Paul always would tell people, you can go out and check with those who saw him, over 500 at one time, many of whom are still awake, that is, are still alive. And so Paul, in this amazing uh, confrontation of the Stoics who did believe in morality, but of the Epicureans who believe that there's only one source of morality, and that is to have a good time all the time, to quote one of our modern philosophers, David Berlinsky. And that Epicurean search for the good life, you know, well, there's nothing wrong with having a good life, but the real good life is found in Christ, not in pleasures and friendships and reading beautiful, elevating art and, you know, literature and seeing beautiful art. That is not the, the goal of life. Now, clues. When I met with my students to prep them for their final exam for Darwin Design, and I'm going to do that with two other courses here today, I gave them ideas, I gave them pointers, I gave them clues. So what clues does God give us? I uh, just want to just, I know we have a few minutes left. Let me just share some of my favorite clues. One of them is hints that come to us even as a child. Um, the book, Surprised by Joy by C.S. Lewis, mentions the clues that he got when he was as young as four or five years old and saw a toy garden his brother Warney put together. There was a biscuit tin turned upside down, a little metal um, kind of, biscuit um, you know, biscuit container that was turned upside down as a base, and then he filled it with moss and sticks and leaves and flowers. And he, I think he even put one or two of the little toy um, animals that they had. And when Lewis saw this, and it was, he was about five years old, it just almost was so beautiful. It was such an amazing transporting moment that he never forgot that experience. He couldn't recreate the same feeling he had when he saw it first, but he just sort of reveled in it. And that led to other experiences, sometimes reading poetry, sometimes viewing landscapes that were just almost like unbelievably beautiful, sometimes in relationships. And, and there's a whole book that James Sire, the same James Sire that wrote The Universe Next Door, an analysis of worldviews that this uh, program has uh, the permission of University Press received its name from. That same, gyre, same James Sire, rather, lecturer, a college lecturer who um, circled the world giving his talks on evidence for Christ, wrote right before he passed away a beautiful book called Echoes of a Voice. Echo, Echoes of a Voice, We Are Not Alone. So he says that if you actually inspect your own life and your own heart and your own experience, you know you've been given, anybody has been given those like supernatural moments, those aha transport moments. Lewis called them joy moments. He even made that the central theme of his book on his conversion called Pilgrim's Regress, which is uh, his story told in allegorical fashion. And so I think uh, I, I have experienced many of those as an unbeliever, but when I met Christ, those experiences uh, of God became daily, or virtually daily. Every week I have another aha, Zainzucht, the German word. It means a beautiful, joyful, painful longing. Well, the longing of heaven will be fulfilled. And, of course, anyone who embraces Christ will receive eternal life now, you don't have to wait for it. You don't have to wait till you die and go to heaven. You have heaven on earth because Jesus never leaves you or forsakes you. And when we, when we sin now as Christians, we don't have to worry about going to hell because he's already paid for us from the, the point view of view of the law. 
but now we're his uh, children of a daddy. And Jesus is our big brother, our Lord, our king, who guides us and coaches us and forgives us and gets us back on the road. So we don't go back to the judge. The court has been dismissed for the Christian. But we come to our daddy and say, I'm sorry, daddy. And we confess. And that's part of growing in grace. Well, thank you so much, uh, Nick, for being a great host of our program. Back to you, brother. Absolutely. I enjoy doing it. If you enjoyed this program, please let us know. Or if you have any questions, at information at apologetics.org. That is information at apologetics.org. And we very much thank you for listening to The Universe Next Door. We'll see you back here next week. You've been listening to The Universe Next Door with Dr. Tom Woodward, sponsored by the C.S. Lewis Society and Trinity College of Florida and supported through the gifts of listeners just like you. To gather resources, continue the conversation, and support The Universe Next Door with your financial gifts, go to apologetics.org. That's apologetics.org. And join us again next time as we continue to seek the truth about life, faith, and worldview in The Universe Next Door.